Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Good friend of mine, and you've heard him many times on this program over the years, Scott Newark is a former Alberta Crown prosecutor, also the former executive director of the Canadian Police Association and vice chair of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, the director of operations for Investigative Project on Terrorism in Washington, D.C., and Scott was a security policy advisor for the governments of Canada and Ontario. Scott, I know you've looked at the decisions by the Supreme Court and um, the as much as we know about the decision that was made by the current government about turning over the $10.5 million to Cotter and then issuing an apology, a formal apology to Cotter. What are you getting out of all of this? What do you make of it? Well, I think the, uh, the point that you made initially about... Uh essentially why it is that the government of Canada lawyers just folded and never even tried to challenge the issues that would have had to have improved um, so as to get some kind of uh, compensation. And you're right, I went back and read the, uh, the original decisions. And the basis, by the way, of the charter breach, the assumptive charter breach, is because of a January 2010 decision of the Supreme Court of Canada that reviewed the interactions of Canadian officials with Cotter while he was in Guantanamo Bay in 2003 and 2004. And that is, I am uh, quite sure what uh, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale was getting at yesterday during the media conference on this, when he repeatedly made the point that this was not about what happened in Afghanistan, this is what, ha- what happened uh, in Guantanamo Bay. And um, while there is some legitimacy to that point in the sense of that's what triggered the conclusion from the Supreme Court that there had been a charter breach, uh, I don't think I've ever seen Ralph Goodale look as uncomfortable or as evasive as he was yesterday in trying to tap dance his way around this because the number one thing that needs to be kept in mind about all of this is that Omar Cotter was not in Guantanamo Bay because of his hair color. He was in Guantanamo Bay because of what he did in Afghanistan. Okay, so there is a link whether the liberal government wants to acknowledge it or not. And the point really was is that what happened, Roy, was back in uh, 2003, 2004, Canadian officials quite properly wanted to interview Cotter about essentially uh, his family's involvement with al-Qaeda. And people forget about this or perhaps don't even know about the extent of the links of Cotter's family with the most senior uh, al-Qaeda leaders. And our officials went down to gather information and intelligence about it. I've expressed it this way in the past, which is, had they not done that, they would have been negligent. Okay, so our people were doing their job in going down to try to get some information. We, however, did not control the process. The Americans did. So it was the Americans that had decided that you can come down and interview them if you want, but you're going to have to give us the copies of any you know, interviews that you do or any tapes or anything else like that. Although I've got to tell you, I suspected and confirmed later, Roy, that um, they were taping everything anywhere in Guantanamo Bay. So basically we gave the Americans what they already had. Okay? And that's relevant to a determination of the extent or the effect of any charter breach. They also you know, made it clear that yeah, he was not allowed to have uh, counsel present when these interviews were taking place. They controlled the procedures, and we had to agree to it to go down and do that. 
So in two times uh, in uh, uh, 2003, Foreign Affairs and CSIS officers went down and interviewed them, and once, I believe it was in February of uh, 2004, a Foreign Affairs official went down, and he was told in advance that they were going to uh, engage in sleep deprivation of Qatar, basically waking him up every three or four hours to move him around in the effort they thought it might, uh, in effect, soften him up. When you read the notes, by the way, of the, uh, official, the Canadian officials who were involved in the interviews, it had absolutely no impact on them whatsoever. But the Supreme Court decided that even though this was an American-controlled system, because of the um, general unfairness of it and their conclusion that it essentially you know, breached international protocols to which Canada had agreed, the conduct of the Canadian officers breached Catter's rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's what the ruling was in, uh, in January of 2010, and that's the basis on which it is being put forward that, oh, gee, you know, we had no, uh, no chance to win this case. And mm-hmm. I've got to tell you, I think that's just nonsense. Well, I was about to ask you, if you were in charge, if it had been your decision to make, they filed a $20 million lawsuit against this country, would you have said, fine, see you in court? And let, let me just explain why, because in particular, uh, the, su- the Supreme Court, when they made the ruling in 2010, the application had been brought by Catter's lawyers, one set of his lawyers, and he's had many, many sets of lawyers who he repeatedly fires and then rehires. The application was brought to get the declaration that this was a violation of his charter rights, and Roy, they actually sought a specific remedy, which, is, if you may recall, was to have the Supreme Court direct the government, which at that point was the Harper Conservative government, to direct the government to seek his repatriation. Well, the Supreme Court found that there had been a charter breach, okay, but they then refused to give the remedy that was sought in um, ordering the government to uh, request repatriation. And instead they said, we will just state that there was a breach and it's up to the government to decide how it should remedy that. That is hugely relevant in terms of whether or not you're going to potentially win or lose at a case for compensation in the future. Yet it was seemingly just ignored by the current Liberal government in making this decision. And guess, there's even more. Uh, That was in January of 2010. I've managed to get some of the documents. As you may remember, Carter entered into his plea deal with the Americans in October of 2010, okay, part of that deal was that he would receive an agreed-upon sentence that was of eight years and that he would serve one year in the United States, and thereafter he would be eligible to apply to be repatriated back to Canada. That's done pursuant to the International Transfer of Offenders Act, and Canada has to agree to it. In October of 2010, in other words, you know, nine months after this Supreme Court decision, the former conservative government actually gave a diplomatic note, I have a copy of it, to the Americans saying that they would, quote, give favorable consideration to a request for transfer. So in other words, completely contrary to what was stated yesterday by the liberal cabinet ministers at this media conference, in fact, it was the conservative government that took the steps to repatriate and expedite Catter's return to Canada. And that's what actually took place. So if that's the case, arguably if there was a charter breach as defined by the Supreme Court, 
the remedy was already provided in what the government did by returning them to Canada. Scott, I have to take a break, but didn't Cotter also delay his return to Canada by firing his lawyers, uh, Edney and, and Whitley? Constantly, yeah. And by also launching all sorts of different applications, challenging the process, absolutely. So he's re- he was Cotter, was, Cotter was specifically and personally responsible for the delay to return to Canada. Much of the delay, yes, he was. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Scott, why the $10 million? What is it that makes that the magic number? Is it because the Liberal government didn't want to be publicly reminded of their indifference to Cotter while they were in power, Chrétien was, and they had the opportunity to petition to remove him from Guantanamo and bring him back to Canada? Yeah, potentially so. I mean, uh, and actually, in fairness, uh, my understanding is that in 2002, the government actually asked the Americans not to send him to Guantanamo Bay, uh, and the Americans just ignored us. That's uh, different than saying, bring him, let him come yeah, back to it, Canada. It, it is. They could have made the uh, formalized request, but I, but I have to tell you, my sense yeah. is that it would have been ignored. Okay. Um, so what's the, why, what's the $10 million? Dollars? What makes that the magic number? Well, you know, that's what was given to uh, Arar. Um, interestingly, the uh, the details of this one are uh, pretty behind closed door, aren't they? Uh, yeah. At least with Arar, you know, we knew what some of the details exactly. were. There had been some kind of an inquiry, although there were, in my opinion, lots of problems uh, with uh, essentially how it was conducted. But it was, you know, uh, laid out as to what it was that was the uh, apparent uh, wrongdoing by our officials, and the amount was there. But this is now the second one of these settlements that this government has done where everything is a secret. And I have to tell you about the amount of money, and I think you mentioned it just uh, as you were going off the air before the break, uh, and I have questions about this too. Um, how much of this money is actually going in contingency fees to pay uh, Cotter's lawyers' teams? Well, what, what do you think the, uh, what the, what would the average fee be, or is there such a thing as an average fee for something like this? My understanding is that uh, it would not be unusual if it was 30%. And he's got two teams of lawyers, one in Alberta and one in Toronto, that the guys in Toronto apparently were handling the, uh, uh, the compensation issues. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's the case, is, is that literally what's happened here, that behind closed door government lawyers and Cotter's lawyers have gotten all chummy and handed over, you know, millions of dollars in taxpayers' money? So the lawyers could the get lawyers? more than Cotter. Yeah, I, I must admit, uh, I hope somebody starts asking some questions about that. Yeah, me too. We even take a look in the public accounts. I saw a reporter ask Minister Goodale about that during the media conference. He really did look like a deer in the headlights of a very large truck, didn't he? Well, and he's normally, I think, very good uh, in the sense of answering questions and being blunt about things. Uh, uh, but uh, not yesterday. Uh, what so about I hope Scott? You have some questions about that, Scott? What about uh, the argument that here Cotter was? He was a child soldier. He was dragged off to Afghanistan by his father, who was a buddy of Osama bin Laden's. And you can't blame Cotter because he was a child soldier. I've seen that a few more than a few times. Well, let's let's be uh, let me be lawyerish first. Uh, as I understand it, according to the international the, the terms of the um, the international agreements, uh, he was actually he did not meet the definition of a child soldier because he was not under the age of 15, okay? But having said that, I don't think there is anybody who would seriously question the fact that, in, you know, that he literally was somebody who was under the evil influence of his parents, who had inculcated him to this death cult of uh, extremist Islam and all of his brothers and sisters and brought them over there. And, I mean, one of the questions for me right from the get-go on this stuff, and I was... 
I was one of the people that used to follow some of this stuff. I knew who Ahmad Khadr was, his father, before 9-11. Um, and uh, why, has his, why were his parents, and his father's dead now, but his mother's still alive, why has she not been charged under Section 215 of the Criminal Code, which is failing to provide the necessaries of life, which includes protecting your kids, mm-hmm. being radicalized into this kind of a death cult and putting them in these... You've asked that question for a long time. Yeah, we, we really have. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I want to say hello again to all of our friends and listeners at CKNW, one of Canada's greatest radio stations in Vancouver. So all of you in Vancouver and the lower mainland of British Columbia, we're back with you on Saturdays and Sundays on The Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I've missed you. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. You can send your emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at The Roy Green Show. There's blog information. We'll get to all of that as well. Omar Cotter is the story for this week in this country. There is really no other story that people are focusing on. And frankly, there's a tremendous amount of anger. I've seen it in my emails. I've seen it on Twitter. Uh, I've heard it on the air. People are furious, furious at Trudeau, furious at the uh, liberal government, furious at the fact that $10.5 million was directed to Omar Khadr surreptitiously, And on Wednesday, the money was put in the account and it was cashed. So this, of course, means that the Americans, two Americans who have particular interest in that money, and for legitimate reasons, in the minds of most of us, are going to have more difficulty maybe accessing some of that $10.5 million. And they are Tabitha Spear, the uh, widow of Chris Spear, the U.S. Army medic, who was killed by Cotter's grenade. And... uh, Sergeant Lane Morris, former Special Forces Sergeant, and um, who was in that firefight in, uh, in Afghanistan in July of 2002. Lane Morris joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Lane, uh, I-, I wish we had better circumstances to speak to you under, as in you had a really significant opportunity to go after the money and it hadn't been delivered to Carter yet, or Carter yet, but it has been. And you and I speculated about this in the in the past in previous conversations. Here it's fact now. What was your instant response? What's your reaction now to the fact that the federal government of Canada has made sure that Omar Carter has the money before you and Tabitha Spear had the opportunity to legally intervene? Well, I'd like to say it's nice to talk to you, Roy, but like you say, these are difficult circumstances. And, and I'll tell you, Roy, I, I feel bad, um, but I don't, you know, my feelings, I think, pale compared to how uh, the members of the Canadian Armed Services have to feel at this point. This, uh, even, though, even though you see the betrayal coming, um, it doesn't make it any less painful when uh, the reality finally hits and you realize your government uh, cares more about a terrorist and his needs and, and comfort than he does yours. And uh, I, I feel bad for those valiant uh, men that I served with from Canada who sacrificed so much to go and represent their country. And this has got to be a tough day for them to see their government side with uh, Cotter. Uh, that's tough. I, I feel bad for Tabitha Spear. I've always felt bad for Tabitha Spear, but, uh, you know, like I said, it doesn't make it any easier. 
if you're a member of the Canadian Armed Services. And for me, you know, the blade, it's a, it's a double cut because, as you referred to, not only did the government uh, give Omar Khadr $10.5 million, but they also do it specifically and deliberately uh, in the, the best way possible to shield him from any type of um, responsibilities beyond that. Uh, and that's got to be, you know, that's just that's the insult to the injury there. Lane, have you had the sense all along that Cotter was getting special treatment even when he was uh, incarcerated in the United States? Remember that conversation you had on the air on this program with uh, Lieutenant Commander Bill Keebler, who has since passed away, and our condolences to his family. But you had a long conversation with him on the air, and what I what I heard and what we've been certainly been talking about and hearing is that Cotter seems to get the special treatment from from governments and from the judicial system. Well, there, there's no there's no doubt about that, and uh, you know I I. Uh, at some point, you just have to look at the at the political party, whether it's a liberal government who sprung Omar's father from jail decades ago, or the liberal government who continues to coddle him. Uh, there's there's a there's a common thread there, and I don't know why Omar Cotter has become the poster child for all that is liberal in Canada, um, but he certainly has been the beneficiary of that and has learned to. To uh, shut his mouth and allow people to to tell his story the way they'd like to tell it, and and uh, they've did a, done an excellent job of, of that. I'd like you to hear some of what Omar Carter said, Lane. Have a listen to this. I don't look at it in a way that I deserve it. It's, it's not a matter of deserving. Whatever happened was in the past. It's not a matter of forgetting the past. It's it's a matter of trying to find the best way where we can reconciliate what happened and move forward in a way that is going to be healthy for everybody. Move forward in a way that's healthy for everybody. I guess you too, Lane. <laughs> well, you know, again, words to this to the Cotter family, to his attorneys, words mean nothing. These people spin and uh, twist stories throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. They've been doing that for the last 15 years. Um, if those words meant anything, um, and, and he is right, he deserves nothing. He ought to just cut that check, sign it over to Tabitha Spear, and uh, we'll all go home and he can feel fortunate that he's still alive. And, uh, and let's go on. But uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't expect uh, anything like that to happen from Omar Carter. When you say he should feel fortunate that he's still alive, your platoon did not have any... Well, nobody was forcing you to keep him alive. In that July, after that July firefight in 2002, you decided as a unit that you would do everything possible to keep this, to keep this young man um, alive. He'd thrown the grenade, and yet you did everything possible to save his life, which you did. Yeah, Omar Carter is, is fortunate because uh, Chris Beer was a medic. And fortunately, we had um, for him. We had another medic that day, and so um, as after Omar threw the grenade and was shot, he would have bled out in about 30 seconds, is what our other medic says. Yeah, he had about 30 seconds, and so it was a quick consultation under the laws of land warfare. It's been very easy 
to simply uh, watch him bleed out and uh, say, well, the battle wasn't quite over. But, um, you know, Western society, we have different we have different standards than some of these people. And the decision was made that now we're here. He's here. Um, he looks like he's surrendered. He's actually asked us to kill him. Let's uh, let's save his life. And so efforts were made on Omar Cotter's behalf. And uh, he is he is the fortunate recipient of of those efforts. How has your injury affected your life? You know, I'm I'm uh, trying to follow the example of of our guys from past wars who have simply come home and uh, put their put their weapons of war down and and moved on with their lives and tried to be contributing solid members of society and be good husbands and fathers. Um, and in my case, a grandfather now. So Congratulations. Um, that's what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm less successful at it than I'd like to be, but uh, my life does not revolve around Omar Cotter or the events of that day. Um, I feel like I have a, a responsibility to, to members of my unit, to Chris Spear, um, and to the people of Canada to uh, continue to uh, push this issue. Lane, has your lawyer given you any indication, uh, told you specifically, perhaps that there is an opportunity to pursue the money that Canada gave Omar Cotter, even though it's in Cotter's possession and maybe his lawyers have been paid already as well? I don't know. But does your lawyer give you any, any, any indication that there's a case waiting to be put forward on your behalf? I, I know our, our attorneys, who are, who are a group of folks that are, that are working extremely hard and are, from my perspective, seem to be brilliant, are uh, pursuing every angle possible um, to try and recover some of those funds, uh, if not all of those funds. There's a, this is another, as you alluded to earlier, Roy, this Omar Cotter rules do not seem to apply to him. Uh, court proceedings statements in court you just you get to say whatever you want in court and then you just flip on a dime and say something else the next time and how his attorney how omar has not been held to task on this is just uh it's just baffling to me what would you say to prime minister trudeau i you know i would say prime minister trudeau you ought to be on the uh, no on the no fly list uh, your name should be added because <laughs> uh you know, what your actions, to me, um, you could add Canada, the Canadian government, is a state sponsor of terrorism because uh, this boy, Trudeau, has simply written a $10.5 million check to uh, radical jihadists. And uh, I don't know how he, I don't know how he does that. I don't, um, I don't understand it, but shameful, shameful. Uh, act of cowardice to uh, to do something like this in the dead of night, as all acts of cowardice are always done in secrecy and only only alluded, only admitted to um, when when necessary. Uh, it's it's uh, that's that's an act of cowardice that I think is a stain on Canadian government history that that will not be uh, easily erased. Lane, we've talked many times, um, and I appreciate you speaking with me today. I, I have a feeling that it's not going to be the last time because I, I know you're determined to see things done right and and uh, go after the money that uh, Cotter has has been issued by the federal government of Canada. You've also always been very gracious in talking about Canadians 
and about the Canadian military. I understand how you feel about the Prime Minister, but you've always been extremely gracious in how you've described people in this country and the Canadians you fought shoulder to shoulder with in Afghanistan. So thank you for that. Let me tell you a quick story, Roy. We got to we got to Afghanistan in, in uh, early in 2002, late 2001, and uh, and the PPCLI guys showed up, and uh, you know the Americans we had our high speed you know ripstop nylon. It was a hundred and whatever degrees there. The Canadian soldiers who were just excellent. I mean, just excellent soldiers, professional beyond belief. I had all of us had such admiration for them. And they were wearing these heavy wool cotton uniforms. And uh, our 82nd Airborne guys were dropping left and right uh, what, what they were wearing under the operational load. And uh, at one point, we went to the, the Canadian guys, the 50 Canadians. We're out in the middle of nowhere. You know, there was there's nobody, you know, uh, the generals are not around. And we finally went to the Canadians, the 50 Canadians said, hey, to their captain, Hey, we got a whole bunch of ripstop nylon. We'd be happy to give you guys these uniforms so you can so you're not uh, suffering so much. And they were very polite. Um, but they all said, "Hey, we appreciate it, but this is the uniform of our country, and it's an honor for us to wear it, even if it's not comfortable, even if it's not as high speed as your guys is." Uh, but that's our that's our uniform, and we wear it proudly. That's a great story. I respected story. him for that. I, I have respected him for that. I love him for that, and and my heart goes out to those guys on this day because, uh, it, like I said, the the betrayal is complete, and uh, it can't be a good day for them. Lane, thank you for the time, and thanks for sharing that story with us. Much appreciated. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Roy. All the best, Sergeant Lane Morris. And I don't think it's over. I don't think it's over. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, emails, just a few, 99% of the emails are just, people are furious of the decision taken by the Trudeau government concerning Omar Cotter and the delivery of the $10.5 million as quickly and as surreptitiously as they did. Don't tell anybody, but we have this check for you. But I got emailed, one or two emails saying, well, look, Roy, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled uh, that Omar Cotter's rights were violated. Yeah, that's right. Supreme Court of Canada did not rule that Omar Cotter should receive $10.5 million. And by the way, the court decision had nothing to do with Cotter's age. It was about CSIS agents questioning Cotter and sharing their information with the Americans. And Supreme Court decisions are not always cut and dried. This one was 9-zip. But you know there have been Supreme Court decisions that were 5-4. I, I understand what the Supreme Court decided. It doesn't stop us from talking about it and challenging what the reality is. While Mr. Cotter has pocketed more than $10 million already, the Trudeau government continues a years-long court battle with Canadian military veterans who argue Ottawa is trying to block pensions and benefits for wounded and injured Canadian soldiers. During the 2015 election campaign, the Liberals promised to take better care of these Canadian military veterans who fought in Afghanistan than the Harper government had taken care. 
Don Sorokin joins me from Vancouver. He's a lawyer for the Canadian military veterans, and uh, he's accused the Trudeau government of a, quote, betrayal. Mr. Sorokin, it's good to talk to you. It's been a while. Just in uh, nuts and bolts fashion, can you remind us what the, the lawsuit is about? The lawsuit was about the taking away of the pension for disabled soldiers in what was called the New Veterans Charter. Uh, veterans legislation means that a, lo- a, a soldier can't sue or anybody serving cannot sue, even as in the case of Dan Scott, our lead plaintiff, where he was injured by a one of these Claymore mine devices that was uh, being he was being trained as to how to disarm them. And it, there's a link there to Cotter because Mr. Cotter has a video out where he's shown preparing these types of uh, Claymore mines where you uh, put a attach it to a a cell phone, and then you can detonate it and cause uh, a tank to be blown up. And the PPCLI lost many soldiers and uh, and one journalist to that type of thing. I don't, by the way, I don't suggest that Mr. Potter's uh, bombs that he was making were used against Canadians. They weren't. But that's the type of uh, of instrument that was used to cause grievous bodily harm. And our system doesn't allow our soldiers to sue. It says you must be treated under the benefits program. And then they altered the benefits program just and it, just for the Afghan war, just before the Afghan war, to take away the rights that every other veteran had enjoyed. And it meant that in a case like Dan Scott, if he had been injured by the criminally negligent op, uh, acts of his training officer in any other context, he would have been able to go into court and sue and probably get a substantial sum. Instead, he got treated in uh, very badly and uh, only recovered a fraction of what he could have got in Civvy Street. So now the, the Harper government had challenged these soldiers initially, these, these veterans, and it was Mr. Harper's government had, that had said initially there was no social contract between men and women uh, of the military and the government of Canada, regardless of what Prime Minister Borden said in 1917. If I understand it correctly, Mr. Trudeau, during the election campaign, specifically mentioned this this case that you're leading for these veterans and said things were going to improve. Is that correct? Yes, no, absolutely. And not only that, uh, I, I, in the election campaign, they almost used their guys as props on, the, on, on, on their platforms, literal, not the written platform but the platform they were speaking from and uh, and people were very heartened that there was going to be this change of attitude in fact even under the conservative government uh, minister o'toole had changed the attitude and we were um, a long way around to getting a, a settlement of it and we thought that with the promises of the liberal government and the step that we made forward with the mr minister o'toole and the conservative government one way or another, we'd have the thing resolved. But instead, when uh, when Minister Hare came in, we went to Ottawa, had a meeting with him. We're expecting to hear that uh, things could be resolved. And instead, they, uh, he announced, uh, no, we're going back to court. And they were going back to court on the, on the argument that had been raised in December of 2014, uh, in which two parts of it were that uh, uh, we can do what we want to veterans, was the, the argument in that first in December of 2014, and secondly, that the honor of the crown concept that we're, we were utilizing to enforce the social covenant only applied to Aboriginals. 
and both of which uh, raised a certain amount of outrage in the community with justification. So they're actively pursuing a case. They're actively opposing, using taxpayer money. They're actively continuing to oppose your clients, Canadian soldiers who volunteered to become members of the military, who volunteered to go to Afghanistan, who are saying, this is what we believe that you, uh, not necessarily owe us, but this is the this is the agreement that we believe was made between the federal government and the men and the women of the Canadian military. And by the way, we have a social contract and the federal government is saying, oh, and they may well be saying, and you said during the election campaign, as you, as you said, uh, Mrs. Sorkin, you, you said you were going to treat us differently than the Harper government, but now you're doing exactly the same thing. So how do we trust you? And if the military cannot trust governments, which send them to war and possible death, the consequences could be enormous. Yeah, and Roy, I just don't understand where this is coming from because in, if you go back to a, a resolution that was put into Parliament that was unanimously passed by Parliament, basically put forward the essential part of our case, and that was that there is a social covenant that gives rise to, rise to fiduciary obligations. That was unanimously passed by all members of Parliament. And during the, that, the speeches to that, the Prime Minister and the members of the Liberal government got up and basically said what I've been arguing in court. So how they can come along now and say, well, we, it didn't mean it, it's not true. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm astonished uh, at, uh, at the change of attitude. But what, what is equally troubling is that when you listen to the PR spiel of these guys now, they try to make it sound like they've solved the problem. They say that they have an option for a pension. But when, they, when you look at what the pension is that they're describing, it's not a pension at all. It's the minimal lump sum that you get under this uh, diminished program spread out over a number of years. So if you, if you get a, a lump sum of $50 when you could have previously got 3000 and, and, and add a bunch of zeros to each of those, and you spread it out over 10 years, that doesn't make it a pension. It makes it a, a nuisance cashing the check. Yeah. So $10 million, $10.5 million, they have that for Omar Cotter, and they deliver it to him very, very quickly. And I think partly because they didn't want to get caught in, an ele- in a court case where they might be embarrassed. But they have $10.5 million for Cotter. Here you go, Mr. Cotter. Have a great rest of your life. Say a few appropriate, provide a few appropriate uh, politically correct sound bites for the mainstream media, and, and, and you'll be fine. But for, for your clients, it's, well... There's no social covenant between the government and you, and by extension, I guess there's no social covenant between the government and the voter. Everybody's getting screwed. There's another link I want to mention about the stuff that happened with Mr. Cotter, uh, and that is that in, I've dealt with thousands of veterans as to what happened to them during this Afghan conflict. Mm-hmm. One of the most devastating things that can happen is that it, they have to shoot a child. And uh, the child soldiers have, a, have a, a double side to it. Members of our military aren't, uh, aren't really looking forward to going into battle with children and, and, and or, or children being affected by battle. But it, so it, sometimes children will get caught up in, in, the, in, in battle and there will be casualties, but they have to actually wage war against a child. I've had personal experiences with soldiers that are years later having a hard time dealing with that. No doubt. No doubt. They deserve what they're asking for. And they were promised that 
as part of the 2015 election campaign by a political party that attained power and now has gone back on its word and is saying, well, we'll see you in court. We have unlimited funds. You don't. I know you're giving of your time for these, for these uh, veterans, and I thank you for spending the time with us, and I thank you for taking care of, of our Canadian military veterans, Mr. Sorkin. It's good talking to you again. Thank you for your interest. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Who do we look after first? The men and the women who wear the Canadian military uniform. That's our responsibility. They volunteer to protect us. And in this case, what's good for Cotter isn't good for our own military men and women. Now, you're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Opioids of all the Canadian provinces, British Columbia, has, as I said a few minutes ago, the most restrictive policies on prescribing opioid medication for chronic pain or perhaps more accurately, chronic agony patients. The president of the Pain Management Physicians of BC Society, in an email to me, accuses the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC of, quote, steadfastly refusing to consult with pain experts either before or since they implemented their policy despite advice from our society and patient advocacy groups that their policy is harming people with chronic pain. It's very serious business. Dr. Owen Williamson joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Williamson, thank you very much for taking the time. Would you please, uh, to begin, speak with us uh, about this document concerning, quote, professional standards and guidelines, safe prescribing of drugs with uh, drugs, with potential for misuse and division. What's it about, and what effect is it having? Uh, Thank you for inviting me to speak on your program, Roy. Um, This is a, and the document referred to is a policy of the board of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC. And it was approved by the board in, on uh, late May last year and became what they describe as a legally enforceable standard on June the 1st, 2016. Uh, This document was produced by the college without consultation with any of the key stakeholders involved and affected by the document. So the document not only refers to opioids, but also to sedatives and stimulants. And the college did not consult with either the pain medicine physicians of BC Society or the British Columbia uh, Psychiatrist Association, or the peak interest groups involved in the management of uh, uh, ADHD. And it didn't consult with the peak uh, patient advocacy groups uh, that are affected by the document either. So the college is not speaking with anybody who's on the front lines? Now, as far as we can gather, they uh, sort of advice internally. They uh, sought advice from addiction physicians, and they sought advice from other people, including uh, Ministry of Health officials and the RCMP. Dr. Williamson, what we've been hearing is from patients and some physicians, particularly in the United States, physicians in the U.S., that this whole issue of opioids is being just dramatically mismanaged, that there are so many patients who are living with incredible pain 24-7, 
and the only thing that keeps them reasonably stable physically and emotionally is an opioid prescription that may have been placed for years. I've spoken with patients who've said, I've had this prescription for 12 years. Now suddenly the guidelines come out, the guidelines from, uh, from McMaster University come out nationally, and my doctor is afraid to prescribe what I've been prescribed for 12 years. I'm either going to see a significant reduction of my pain meds or they're going to be withdrawn entirely, and if that happens, I'm committing suicide. Yes, we've heard that story time and time again. Uh, approximately one in five Canadians live with chronic pain, and probably 10% of those have opioids as part of their legally prescribed pain management program. Uh, the problem is uh, not so much with guidelines relating to opioid use, but the implementation of guidelines of legally enforceable standards that require physicians to act in a certain way in order to avoid either being deregistered or fined by their regulatory authorities. Now, I've talked to uh, patients who have, in fact, I've talked to doctors off the air who've said to me, I cannot risk at 12 years I've invested in getting my medical license. I'm afraid to prescribe the medications I know my patients need, and so therefore I cannot and I will not. And uh, Dr. Mary Redmond, uh, who is a pain physician from Ottawa, who was on the air with us a few weeks ago, has 1,200 pain patients, said her patients say to her, Dr. Redmond, what will you do if you die? And she said, I don't know. I'm afraid of that. So clearly this, this whole issue, uh, Dr. Williamson, appears to be spinning off off the rails. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. My guest is Dr. Owen uh, Williamson. He is the president of the Pain Management Physicians of BC Society. And uh, we're on the issue of pain meds for chronic pain patients or chronic agony patients. And often this leads to opioids and it leads to many questions. It leads to confused doctors and it leads to, I think, medical bureaucracies that are not answering questions. For example, let me just play you a little bit of my interview with the Federal Minister of Health, just about a minute and 20 seconds of my interview with Jane Philpott, the Federal Minister of Health on the issue of opioids. Dr. Philpott, why is all the talk from governments about painkillers instead of pain? You do know that people who take painkillers, people who take opioids, do it just to make life tolerable. Well, I think that's a fantastic point, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, uh, it's a fair point that the conversation needs to be around the pain and recognizing that when people do take uh, substances that uh, are used for controlling pain, it's because they have pain, sometimes uh, physical, sometimes psychological, but uh, the pain is uh, certainly should be a central theme to this conversation. So then why is all the talk about the painkillers instead of the pain? Well, I, you know, I think it depends who you talk to. I, I, I think this is a, an issue that has a whole range of perspectives on it and, and views, and I certainly uh, try to encourage people to uh, not oversimplify it and not, uh, not see that uh, there's any one single story to uh, the issue of the fact that uh, we have uh, an overdose uh, epidemic in this country. But uh, you're absolutely right that part of the conversation has to be around the fact that uh, people uh, have pain and that they, if, if they do, that they deserve to get care for that pain. So no answer. No answer to either question. And it went on and on. And I pointed out to the minister that she wasn't answering my questions. And 
We had about 17 minutes of that. Dr. Owen Williamson is uh, the Pain Management Physicians of BC Society president. So, Dr. Williamson, when it came to you uh, personally and your your association of pain physicians contacting uh, the college and asking them specifically for answers to key questions, what were some of the questions that needed answers and how specific were the answers that you got? Well, we had uh, a broad, we have, first of all, we had broad questions regarding the legality and the ethics of their document. And then we had further questions about the interpretation of the document. And as the registrar of the college said, Dr. Erta, she counted them up, and there are over 70 questions about the interpretation of the document. And I'd have to say that none of the substantive questions have been answered to this day. None. None. What does so that by do? For example, one of our, our concerns is that, uh, first of all, that the uh, document uh, requires physicians to restrict access to care that both would contravene the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and the Canada Health Act, which uh, requires uh, universality and transportability of uh, treatment. So, for instance, if you came to British Columbia from Alberta, you would now be precluded from having treatment that were available in Alberta in contravention of the Canada Health Act. And that's the reality today? That's the reality today. What is this? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, we had concerns about the ethics of it, particularly because the college was was requiring us to tell patients uh, things that were not true in terms of whether uh, treatments were appropriate or not. So, for instance, their uh, document says physicians must advise patients that long-term opioid therapy is not indicated for certain medical conditions currently undefined, but including headache disorders, fibromyalgia, and axial low back pain. So the problem we have with this particular statement, first of all, it is discriminatory against people with those conditions. Uh, The medical evidence is that those conditions should not be excluded from long-term opioid therapy. Health Canada says that uh, opioids and other medications are indicated for those particular conditions. And now even Dr. Otter has come out and said that, you know, they will come down hard on anyone who discriminates uh, against patients on the basis of their condition, yet they have uh, steadfastly refused to change that particular standard. So you have, uh, you're talking out of both sides of their mouths, and you have confused physicians and terrified patients. We have uh, terrified patients and we have terrified physicians. Why is this happening? Oh, well, the simple reason is that it's happening because of the college's document. I mean, but for that document, this problem would not have occurred. Mm-hmm. And, and to put it further into perspective is that uh, whatever the reasons the college had for uh, in- introducing this document, uh, which they said initially was in response to the opioid crisis uh, in British Columbia, we have informed them from the start that there was no evidence to support that assertion. And now even the chief coroner of British Columbia comes out and said that the excess of deaths due to the illicit use of opioids in BC is solely attributable to the use of illicit fentanyl and that the deaths associated with the legal, with legally prescribed medications hasn't changed. And even the underlying death rate due to 
uh, overdose of other medications apart from fentanyl hasn't changed. So there's no scientific basis for this particular document. I also found in the in the other guide, the uh, the one that came from McMaster, uh, and I spoke with the editor, read all 84 pages of it, and I immediately found um, mistakes. I, f- I found the impossible was being suggested. And the editor, to his credit, agreed with me. But they still issued it as guidelines, and physicians have said about that, when I've spoken to doctors in, uh, in other provinces, that they don't consider them guidelines. They consider them to be direct uh, directives, and they'd better follow them. Now, tomorrow, I, I find this very difficult to do, but tomorrow I'm going to be speaking with the wife and daughter of a 53-year-old man who took his own life because he was being jerked around by the medical profession, different, different uh, groups within the medical profession, because they're all confused. And so he was constantly being pushed from left to right and right to left and being denied what he required. And so now I'm going to be talking to, the, to, to, a, to a widow and an orphan for no reason at all, no good reason at all. How alarmed, how, are you, how concerned are you about where we're headed under the current mess that obviously exists? And we'll just look at British Columbia. Well, I think there are a number of different issues here, and I think that the opioid issue is certainly one. But the bigger issue is that people are running into trouble because they don't have access to the myriad of other evidence-proven therapies that can help people with chronic pain. And so what has happened in British Columbia, other resources such as educational resources, physical therapies, psychological interventions and self-management programs are not readily available, which means that physicians really have very few other options when it comes to treating the people with the persistent pain. So the bigger issue here, and what has happened, is that the college has said, okay, now we're going to restrict the use of one of the few tools you have, and it's not within our mandate to ensure that the other tools are available. So it's like saying, well, ideally our table would have four legs. At the moment we've only got one, so we're going to chop that off. Yeah. Yeah, in the in uh, I don't want to keep referring to the other guide, but in the other in the in the guide that came from McMaster, they talk about uh, pain patients having access to kinesiologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, physiotherapists, uh, acupuncturists, and an entire list nurse practitioners. And I asked, where in Canada is that possible? And the answer was, well, nowhere. Exactly, and I think to go back to Dr. Philpot, uh, you know, again, it's somewhat disingenuous to sort of just talk about. Uh, the merits of opioids without providing any framework for providing all these other resources. And this is why we actually then actually need a national pain strategy that ensures that that the one in five Canadians living with persistent pain have access, uh, both uh, timely access and affordable access to all these other uh, uh, therapies and resources they need to live with their condition. Yeah, and it doesn't help but, Dr. Williamson, to hold a, a summit on opioids, um, and and the only people who are not invited to attend are pain sufferers and their doctors. Well, I think that that uh, reflects some other political agenda, and I don't know what that agenda is, but yeah. the agenda should be that uh, both at provincial and national levels, uh, pain strategies are put in place that okay. uh, enable these people to get access to the resources they need. Dr. Williamson, thank you. I hope we can talk again. Thanks for the time today. You're welcome.
welcome. Thank you. Dr. Owen Williamson from British Columbia on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network on this huge issue of chronic pain and opioids and pain management. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I just received this email from Patty. A year ago, Roy, my daughter and her husband were on the run from Fort McMurray. Fortunately, they were spared any loss. Yesterday, they were running again, this time out of Laklahash, their current job posting. Unbelievable. This should be here on the island later today. It'll be interesting to see how they're faring this time. Wish us luck. Absolutely, Patty. Wish you luck. My God. Talk about two places you don't want to be when, when raging forest fires are going on. And, of course, we're back on uh, AM, uh, not in, on CKNW in Vancouver, uh, one of our great heritage radio stations in Canada, Chorus Radio, CKNW, and also uh, looking forward to, well, we'll go to the phone lines tomorrow. We can take a lot of calls tomorrow. Um, I want to hear from folks in British Columbia, as we had for years before. We've been gone for a while, and back this weekend, and back every weekend with the most politically incorrect view of the world that you can imagine are the women we refer to as... I just thought about this. Is this misogynistic if I call you beauties? No. No. As years go by, we love it more and more. You sure? We do. With every birthday (laughs) that passes. It's not sexist or (laughs) mean-spirited or... No. Just now, come on, we said politically incorrect. Smarten up, Roy. No, oh, no. No, I have to be sure You're about these things. You're trying to be politically correct here. Well, I I have to be sure of these things. It's, <laughs> it's the pressure's on men. Uh, Catherine Swift, former CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, now working Canadians.ca. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Roy. Linda Leatherdale, former muddy editor of the Toronto Sun and vice president of Cambria, Canada, lindaleatherdale.com, independent business journalist, Ms. Leatherdale. Hello, Roy. And Michelle Simpson, who sat beside him for years, sat beside him, who was treated like (laughs) a superstar in Europe, him, the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Because alphabetically, it was Simpson and Trudeau. Yeah. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Roy. So, there's a lot of things that we need to talk about um, today on Beauties and the Beast. And I, I want to start with, we're going to get to Omar Cotter in a minute, but I want to start with this. The G20. And, and after I mentioned Justin Trudeau's name, I feel like genuflecting and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure you did every day he walked into the parliament because that would be his, wouldn't that be his expectation or am I being a little forward? Well, no, but it sure brought the spotlight to me for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that sitting with him? Yeah, well, she's a nobody, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, you know, you have 300 sets of eyes from the gallery. Right scouring looking for him <laughs> and her is sitting right beside him <laughs> <laughs> okay i have a lot of questions but i can't, I can't ask i can't ask them right now um so g20 we have the the 20 nations gathering we have the predictable unusual violence and this time it really really got ugly on the streets of hamburg 
For some reason, the mayor of New York City, de Blasio, decided the day after a female officer was assassinated, or just a police officer, it doesn't matter whether it's female or, or male, it's a horrific situation, police officer was assassinated, de Blasio skips the inauguration or the swearing-in of new NYPD members and scurries off to Hamburg to be the keynote speaker at a protest meeting protesting the G20. There's, there's all sorts of activities going on, and the importance of G20. I, I, a lot of us wonder, there's G7, and then there's G20. Catherine, you're the business person. What's the significance of these, these, these people meeting for a couple of days, making pronouncements, and then going home and doing exactly the opposite? Well, yeah. For starters, it's all optics, no substance. Um, I suppose meetings of whatever kind have to take place and should take place, substantive meetings among heads of countries and the finance ministers and so on. But these are all photo ops. Uh, and and I, I've been reading about this, but, you know, the G20 has now been around for almost 20 years. It was 1999 that it started. Um, and it, it was woefully incompetent in terms of the uh, financial meltdown of 2008. These are the kinds of things the G20 was supposed to have been created to do something about, and it hasn't. And what bothers me and a lot of people is that it increasingly just looks like another arm of the UN. And the UN is a big, hoary bureaucracy that costs a fortune, accomplishes little, if anything, puts people like Saudi Arabia on their women right, women's rights committees, and you know Iran on their or on their human rights committees, and all this insanity. Why do we need another costly bureaucracy? This, I, I was noticing a quote from the former Bank, Bank of England head, and he said the main thing the G20 does is create jobs for security people and journalists. And nothing personal, Roy, but I don't think that's a good enough excuse to have it. Well, I'm not in Germany. No. I know, but you're a journalist. <laughs> but I'm not in Germany. No. no, but I understand what you mean. And, and, and it's spelled H-O-A-R-Y. Exactly. That's what you were saying. That's what I was saying. So, Michelle, from the political perspective, uh, is anybody, really anybody within Parliament, excited about, keyed up about, uh, keenly involved with what's going on at G20, or are they more interested in having a nice barbecue and a cold one? Well, I think G20, Roy... Uh, gives all the parties ammunition for the start of the next session. And it is wildly expensive. We saw it when we hosted it. And, you know, we spent gazillions of dollars in gazebos and fake lakes. (laughs) You know, it's just become stupid. It's like the um, Olympics. Like, no one can afford it. And it's, to me, I agree with Catherine. It's about photo ops. It's about feeling good. And they don't get anything substantive done. No, and Linda Leatherdale, your favorite politician, Mr. Trump, was the only one to hold out against the climate change argument. Um, and uh, just stood his ground on things he felt he should stand his ground and brings a completely different perspective to the G20. Um, what do you uh, What are you taking well, away from this? Well, I, no, I, first of all, I agree with both Michelle and um, Catherine that this is like a PR. Of course you do. You're three women. You agree with each other. You <laughs> pick on me. <laughs> yeah. 
But but having said that, I mean, one thing I will say, Trump took the opportunity to meet with Putin and square squared off with him. Like, did you interfere with uh, the election in the United States? And of course, he's deny, deny, deny. Um, but so in, in some of those one on ones. Yeah. And I think, you know, Trump is standing up, I think, for what he believes, because, as you know, there's a lot of issues on the table. And then yeah. we've got Justin Trudeau agreeing, you know, with the climate change. He's agreeing with all these things that Trump is actually seems to be standing alone on. Um, I think he's had he, a couple of good days. He's had a couple of very reason, reasonably good days. Yes. And but but will anything come of it? That's the whole thing. Is this yeah. is, is there substance to this or is this just PR? And of course, I think the American people and even the people in Canada would say, come on, you guys fess up. There, there had to be something going on with the election, despite what they say. What is going on in, in, in the background? So, Not sorry, me. Roy. Somebody's making margaritas. What is, what is <laughs> no. happening there? Can I have one? Okay, so while, while, you were, uh, while you're getting ready to do a little partying, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So an email from uh, Guido Roy listening to your show today, and I have a couple of questions. One, I heard a clip of Omar speaking of helping to restore his reputation. Which reputation? That of being a murderer, a rebel fighter, or that of being a millionaire? Let's have a listen to something that Omar Cotter said yesterday. Like, I don't look at this as profiting. This is not a time for profit or for gaining or for... Uh, thinking, oh, I did it, or I hit the jackpot, or whatever. This is, this is, I think, a time for remembering. It's a time of reconciliation. Sure it is. Sure it is. Sure, it's all about reconciliation and the keys to the bends. That's what it's about. There's so many angry, 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 frustrated, upset people um, just it's just a nonstop rain of emails and and uh, Twitter's very active as well and just frustration with the fact that Cotter got 10.5 million and it was shipped through very quickly on Wednesday and the check was cashed and so now Lane Morris the sergeant who lost his eye uh, who's on this program with us uh, about an hour and a half ago and spoke so eloquently about Canadian soldiers he fought with and how disappointed those Canadian soldiers must be with what happened. And then immediately afterward, I received an email from a member of the Canadian forces saying exactly the same thing, that they're just disgusted with what took place. That's all they've talked about since Wednesday. So here Omar Cotter has $10.5 million, and he wants to reestablish his Canadian reputation. Really? Well, maybe he should give some of that money to uh, the widow. That would, that would go quite a ways toward doing that. Why doesn't he do something substantive? Why doesn't he? I, you know? But, you know, this whole thing, the, the settlement alone was, was quite odious. I think most people can agree. And we can dance around the fine legal points. He may well, the courts may well have awarded him that. We don't know that, but that could have happened, to, you know, to, to try sure. to be fair here. But the, the, when, when I heard about the quickie dis, uh, distribution of the money, the sneaky way it was done, when I saw Ralph Goodale trying to blame the conservatives, which was just factually a big, fat lie, uh, that's when it really started to stink for me. Yeah. That that quick, quick underhanded, sneaky payment, the immediate cashing of it, and and the Goodale malarkey. And Goodale should know better. He was in the cabinet for goodness sakes back in the Kretchen. And don't forget, don't don't forget, don't, don't forget that the Kretchen government 
at every opportunity to try to get Cotter out of Guantanamo oh, yeah, and, and did nothing about it. And didn't. So th- this, this is what really, I mean, again, you can, we can dance around legalities, but those, those but you factors know what, to Catherine, me were the kickers. I spoke with Scott Newark at the start of the show. Many, many people heard, uh, heard me speak with Scott. Others did not. But Scott was former Crown Attorney and former uh, Security Advisor to the federal and provincial governments. And he said he would definitely have gone to court. He would definitely have fought Cotter for that $20 million. But clearly the government didn't want any part of that. Michelle, what's your read? They wanted it behind them. Exactly. And you know, it's going to come back in the election to bite them in the butt. I can see the commercial now with, you know, a Cotter or a terrorist and Trudeau handing a check for $10.5 million. I don't care what Goodell says. I don't care that it's gone through consecutive governments under your watch on Wednesday, you wear it. And uh, Linda Mahar Arar, who received $10 million a few years ago, and he was in very difficult straits, but I think there were still questions about Mr. Arar that weren't answered. There were. But, but he, yes. tw- he tweeted yesterday, essentially, that if you, uh, those people who disagree with the settlement for for uh, Omar Khadr, that racism is involved. Oh. So 52,000 people who by yesterday had signed the Canadian Taxpayers Federation protest against the $10 million must be 52,000 racists. Uh, it, it, it's just getting insane, Roy, insane. You know, Catherine said a good thing when she, when she said, why doesn't he take this $10 million and give it back perhaps to the family that he has hurt or somebody? But the, And racism? I am so sick of that card being pulled all the time. And yep. Michelle is right. This is going to come back and bite. Do you think so? Liberals. I wonder. I hope so. Do you think so? I hope so. Yeah, what, yeah at election time, Roy. You think, you think this one has legs to be able to, to, to still be uh, a major issue come the 2019 election? Yep. Well, because of all the look, – look at the blowback you've got. I've been looking on Twitter and listening to media and stuff. Canadians, a, a lot of Canadians, are really, really mad about this, yeah. and justifiably so. You know what's also making people angry is that when Canadians are in trouble, they receive no assistance whatsoever. And I read an email from a family member of uh, one of the two Canadians who was murdered by uh, Abu Sayyaf in, uh, in, uh, in the Philippines, and it was such, a, such an emotional letter and I, she didn't want to meet him. Well, I didn't want to mention her name, but so I won't. But she was out shopping, and she listened to what was going on, and went home and cried because the government of Canada did nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing for either family. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to have uh, the sister and cousin. It was arranged uh, already um, uh, on the air, on the air tomorrow to start the show. So the, 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 what will upset people is that. For Canadians who find themselves in a situation like these two Canadians did who lost their lives, federal government is nothing. Nothing. Zero. They're told to be quiet. Yep. It's disgusting. It's and and, and our own military too. and all of the – and mind you, all governments should wear that one because I believe our military has never been properly treated for decades by governments of different yes. political stripes. That's but great. when we see them – struggling to get any kind of a reasonable pension or whatever when they're injured to some kind of reasonable settlement, 
this is when this really rubs people the wrong way. Let me just read you a couple of lines from the email from the family member of Robert Hall. And uh, she writes, My heart broke last June when at 4 a.m. his brother broke his forced silence and we knew Bobby's head had been found in a bag. We received no help from our government, none. Sadly, if a Canadian now is in danger in another country, they are on their own. Their families are on their own. Not a cent is spent to help them. We did not expect a ransom that would have put every traveling Canadian in danger from these barbarians, but we had no help. No effort was made to rescue them, even though we know the Philippine government was ready to help us rescue them. I've talked to other families who've come out of the woodwork to share with us. They've been treated the same way. We had no counsel or support from our Foreign Services Department. We were on our own. We, are, we dealt with this and have continued on thinking this is the way it is in Canada now for ordinary, everyday citizens. Wow. Wow. And you know what this smacks of when you compare these situations is there's no underlying morality or set of principles. Every, every situation, and this is my presumption, I may be dead wrong, but I don't think so, every situation is a, is a political calculation. And you're right, Michelle, when you say they wanted this one out of the way well before the next election with the, the Arar situation. Yeah. Um, or Qadar, sorry, the Qadar situation. Um, and I, I think they felt there wouldn't be enough blowback politically in Canada from the, the Philippines and, and some other similar scenarios. So there's no principles underlying this. Every situation is a cold political calculation. All right, now I have to stop because we're at the end of our time. Aww. Aww. <laughs> Aww. We'll talk next Saturday for sure. Beauties. Look forward to it. Good. We okay. look forward to it. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.